podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello everyone and welcome back to Rival Recon here on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Harry Sethi. The Reds' identity crisis this season continued with a dire performance away to Wolves last time out, leaving Klopp and the travelling cop feeling suitably deflated. What better way to bounce back then than with a fixture in which form often goes out of the window, as Liverpool get ready to welcome Sean Dyche's Everton to Anfield this Monday evening for the second Merseyside derby of the season. Joining me on the pod to discuss the messy series of events that have led to Deitch taking the helm as Everton boss, we welcome on editor for CBS Sports Soccer and one half of the Double Pivot podcast, Mike Goodman. Welcome back, Mike. I am happy to be here. It's been a while. Yeah, so we were just catching up briefly before before we started recording. Um, and yeah, it has been a while since we, we last had a chance to catch up. I think a lot has happened uh, in regards to Everton since since we last caught up, but I, I don't want to go too far back, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to go back right to the start of the season, uh, oh, the end of last season, really. Um, and just to get your thoughts on, you know, obviously the um, sort of escaping relegation uh, at the end of last season, uh, Lampard sort of staying in post and then sort of uh, the the window that followed into the, the, the players that were brought in by the club. I mean, Sort of where were your expectations at the start of the season? I mean, and in, in terms of sort of the the areas in which the club did strengthen, uh, how far did that go to sort of meeting what you thought was was needed? Yeah, so I think I'll I'll, I'll take a sort of a, a, a top down approach here. Um, on, on my podcast, we we have this concept that we call the Sunderland Vortex, back to the um, the long descent of Sunderland out of the Premier League. Yeah, yeah, and and that sort of refers to the idea that every year you find yourself in relegation battle. Every year, sometime around February, March, you fire the manager you have, you bring in the next manager to save you from relegation. You scrape by that summer, then you spend a window making purchases for the manager that has saved you from relegation to try to build him his squad, only to do the same thing again the next year over and over and over again. And that to me has felt like where Everton has found themselves. Um, I, the Rafa Benitez hire at the beginning of last season was understandable, even if it might not have been what I wanted to do. Firing him was understandable. Firing him at the end of January, after you had just sold players he didn't like, cleared out staff he didn't like, and let him buy players that he did like, not understandable. Mm. Then you bring in Lampard, and Lampard Lampard wasn't great last year, but you, you survived relegation when it really looked like maybe you weren't going to for a while. And then you do the same thing with him. And again, I am not upset at all with fighting Frank Lampard. I thought he did a very poor job at the beginning of the season. I thought the the summer window was not terrible. You bring in Onana, who's an interesting prospect, who I like a lot. Um, Neil Mopé is a, a limited player, but you understand that that's a positional need and you fill a positional need. A um, little less about Dwight McNeil. Like, I get why you do it. I get why you bring in Tarkowski. Those are all reasonable decisions. But Lampard just didn't do a, a good job with them at all. Um and, you know, it's sort of it is indicative of where you get to as a fan base, where you look at a hire like Sean Dyche and you're like, yes, that makes sense. That is what this team needs. The team needs stability. The team needs to improve defensively, to play up to their capabilities defensively and to just be boringly. They need to be boringly not good as opposed to being 
less boringly very bad. And they were very bad under Frank Lampard. So the hope is that they mm. will be good enough now just to survive. And then you go from there. Yeah. And on on, on Lampard, I mean, I, I'll just put sort of my cards on the table here. I, I thought when the appointment was made, um, that it was a bad one. And I remember speaking to sort of the, I do have friends. I do have friends who support Everton. It is possible as a Liverpool fan. And I think <laughs> plenty of, uh, of the listeners will attest that as well. Um, but yeah, just things weren't adding up in terms of you looking at this, this guy's qualifications or in, sort of in my view, sort of the lack of qualifications or the lack of proof that he'd, um, he'd been able to produce in, in, in terms of his actual ability as a coach. Um, I, I think for sort of, a variety of levels, but then also to come into a, a particular situation, uh, as you say there, where it's a, a side looking to avoid relegation, a side with sort of pretty well-known issues um, going back over a number of years now, um, and to bring in a manager who, for me, sort of had no no discernible identity, to be honest, um, and I, I, I think you could probably say hadn't necessarily achieved uh, the the main goals he probably set out to at, at his previous clubs, it, it struck me as a weird one. I mean, I, I, I sort of understood the toxicity around Benitez. I understood the fact that um, you know it needed to be somebody else who came who came in, and I actually think that there was a a genuine degree of uh, sort of um, empathy that Lampard showed, and sort of the, the the connection he forged with supporters did seem to be sort of more than just you know. Uh, designed for the cameras and things like that. But I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, just uh, when that appointment was first made, um, uh, never mind the sort of the vortex you're talking about there and sort of doing the <laughs> same, same thing over and over again. I mean, w- what was your view on, on Lampard? Because it, it, it did surprise me just how much faith um, he seemed to get considering the lack of sort of evidence to back it up. Yeah, I so I think... I think there's a relatively wide range of manager who will have a team playing to more or less the level of their talent. And I think at the time that if Frank Lampard had achieved that, and if you thought Frank Lampard had achieved that, then everything else that came with it, there really was, as you say, this pretty fast, genuine connection and this feel good you know, like a vibes-based approach to managing is okay if you're playing to your talent level and your talent level is good enough. And that was more or less what happened when he comes in. And I think that that was important. It would not have been my choice. I was somewhat skeptical. But I think that it, given the talent level, it proved to be just enough. And I do think that like that sort of bond was good for Everton at the time. That said... Like there was absolutely nothing about his resume that when you then have to sell Charlotte and Orban Summer and you're selling your best player and you're not bringing in talent remotely of that level, that suggests he's going to take a team without a ton of talent and have them play over their heads, right? And are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads. Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast... You can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to AnfieldIndex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. To some degree, you take the good and the bad, but it is... As a team, you cannot keep doing that, right? You cannot keep like bringing in the guy to have a good vibes-based rally to save your season and then having him not be good enough and then hand him the keys. Like, you just can't do that. You need to find some degree of stability at the bottom of the table if you're ever going to rebuild. And, you know, I understand the hope that Frank Lampard could do that, but there was precious little little evidence that he was going to be that guy. Whereas on the flip side, like, Sean Deitch, it's a little bit like taking your medicine, right? Tactically and sort of the general approach. And he's going to say a lot of things like, well, we can't, we can't be that ambitious. We just have to play tough. 
and you, you sort of have to swallow that pill. But at the same time, there's a lot of evidence that he can bring stability and being good enough to a roster at the bottom of the table to keep them, you know, from relegation for a while. And that is desperately what Everton needs. So, yeah, no, in terms of fits, I mean, and we'll definitely come on to sort of like discuss or dive in more detail. I mean, I, I think he's a very good fit, uh, and I don't, I, I don't think it's a negative thing to to say that as well. I think he's, um, he's what the club need at, at, at this point in time. And I think, I think his ceiling could be a little bit higher than what we've actually seen to date, to be honest, and sort of what he was, uh, you know, sort of dealing with, uh, as, as manager of Burnley, what he was, sort of the resources at his disposal. Um, just one more thing on Lampard. And, and, and I, I, this is, this is not me just trying to kick Lampard. I mean, I, I think listeners probably might, might think that that's, uh, uh, inevitable given sort of my opinion on the guy. But, um, <laughs> Under Lampard, um, did, did you? What was the closest you got to sort of a discernible sense of like a philosophy or an approach he was trying to implement into the team? I mean, was like w- when things clicked under Lampard, which again, admittedly <laughs> well, was not yeah. <laughs> very often at all, um, or even when, even when things didn't click, but you. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Were, so, were there games where it was noticeable what he was trying to do? There were a couple of things. I mean, one when Richarlison was still here down the stretch last year. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a real style, right? You feature Richarlison when you get Dominic Calvert-Lewin on the field and you have Richarlison's ability to be a very annoying wing defender while also being a second forward, and, and you feature that. Okay, that's great. Now, this year, to the extent there was a style, um, it was... Like, the problem is, is that stylistically they were defined by this thing that they couldn't do, and that was defend. And you would have a lot of positional um, conservatism where you weren't sending a ton of guys up the field, but that wasn't making you a solid defensive team. And there was, you know, there were there were hints of things. Alex Awobi in midfield had was is having a good season, turning him into this sort of true center midfielder guy who can progress the ball up the field and knit things together and you get the most out of his talents was a real thing. And I think generally if you're going to like look for is there anything Lampard did well here um getting the most out of Iwobi is what you would point at whether it was in the run in last season playing him as this sort of interesting wing back whether it's this season as a center midfielder there was something there but like this style where he clearly didn't want to just defend and counter he wanted to have the ball and do something with it. And they could never really do that. It just never worked this year. It was sort of the wrong collection of talent, but there was also just never really been evidence from Frank Lampard that he can coach the defensive side of the ball, that he can take Mm. a team and make them, even if you tell players, like, I don't want you venturing ahead of the ball when it's out of our possession. Like you have to coach a defense. You have to put players in positions to succeed. And this team just never really did that defensively under him. They should have been better defensively given the decisions they were making tactically about how adventurous to be and they just weren't yeah no and i think i i think that's been the common theme to be honest that's, that's run through sort of his his coaching career so far so i mean it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what he does next i suppose in terms of uh uh i think probably a lot of it does probably depend on on the ego of the individual right in terms of sort of being willing to sort of uh, be self-critical understand sort of where he's lacking and, and maybe again okay, Maybe you shadow somebody for a little bit. Maybe you go abroad and sort of. I mean, there, yeah, there are a lot of different ways that a manager can develop their career. Right? And I think you look at you look at successful managers right now. Uh, you look at Mikel Arteta, uh, who went and 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 assistant assisted under Pep. You look at Eddie Howe, who managed for a long time in the Championship, came up, was at Bournemouth for a long time in the Premier League, took two years off and came back as a better manager now at Newcastle, right? These these were processes of learning your craft. Mm. And I think that it is a very, very rare man. It's not that they don't exist, but it is a very rare manager who comes, even somebody like, say, Zinedine Zidane took a year and a half, you know, first under Ancelotti, then managing the B team before he got the reins. Like 
there's a process here that that a, a manager should go to go through, and if they're going to develop the guys that are young managers that become successful quickly, do it because they themselves show some degree of managerial talent. Frank Lampard became a young manager successfully because his name was Frank Lampard. And if he's going to be a good manager, he has to learn the craft, I think. And you can you can be an average manager, I think, getting opportunities at the top. But either you have to be good already or you have to learn how to be good if you're going to do this. And I think that, you know, for Frank, whether that's in the championship, look, Wayne Rooney – Went to the championship, is in MLS now. Like, he has not just immediately come up and gotten big Premier League jobs. If you want to do this, you got to do it right, I think. No, absolutely. You know, and I, I think it was almost signposted by the fact that when Lampard was announced as, as Everton manager, I seem to remember there being, there being some sort of graphics put out on social media, right, around his, his, uh, you know, his trophy hall as a player, his records as a player. Right. And I, I, I just thought, God. That's, that's that's everything that's wrong with this situation because it's obviously as a Liverpool fan I can be sort of humble enough to sort of uh, you know talk about the similarities with with Gerard as well right in terms of okay maybe Gerard had a bit more success in terms of sort of his time up in Scotland but that's a very particular level so, you know he had a very particular group of people around him as well uh, you know uh, I, thought, investment. I thought Gerard was good at, at, at Rangers mm. and um, I thought and he, I thought his first. His first few months at Villa were good, and then he. I think what happened is he came with an assistant manager who was doing most of the tactics. And that that assistant seems manager to be left. it, yeah. And like you know, I don't think that there's anything a problem for a managerial style where you sort of are kind of the CEO of the team and you oversee Ooh. the guy who is the tactical manager and does does that for you. But if that's the case, when your one tactical guy leaves, part yeah. of your job <laughs> and what makes you a good manager is that you got to bring in somebody else, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's that's the thing that you're doing as a manager. And so, you know, all of these guys, I think they like even, you know, Gerard Lampard, whoever, they come in with strengths and weaknesses. And part of the process of turning yourself into a good manager is learning those things about yourself as a manager and then learning how to strengthen your weaknesses, whether it's Mm. knowing that you're going to need to bring in another assistant coach who does X, Y, and Z, or, you know, maybe, maybe what Lampard really needs is somebody who brings a lot of defensive knowledge on his staff, and, and you build out those connections and those people so that when you build a staff, you have that person as your right-hand man rather than having to learn how to do it yourself. Like there's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about being successful. But mm. this crop, this new crop of guys who were great players who now have sort of come in and tried to be take a real quick path to the top as managers, you got you got to learn what it is that you're good at and how to bolster the things that you're bad at if you're going to be a success. No, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it's uh, as someone who d- does sort of, uh, you know, hope that Gerard's able to develop his career as well as a, as a coach. And I think he's a, a long way from being sort of ready uh, to be considered, you know, sort of any sort of option for, for Liverpool, for example. I think, yeah, I, w- I would like to see him go, you know, go elsewhere and find those, you know, find those tactical minds. If, for example, that's what he needs and, you know, actually sort of be humble enough to him. And it, it's something that, that, as you were talking there, it actually made me think back to, and there's clearly lots of speculation about what's exactly what's gone wrong at Liverpool, um, this, this season, for example. But in terms of, uh, the, the, the period where Liverpool have been most successful under Klopp, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about Jurgen Klopp and the sort of a, a, um, a departure from what we uh, Liverpool fans had seen uh, with Brendan Rodgers seemed to be, uh, you know, that Klopp was uh, a guy who spoke pretty openly about the fact that he was good at certain things uh, and that uh, he realised that he wasn't good at other things. And so he empowered people who were very good at those things to do their jobs. Uh, and it was a uh, quite a nice cohesive yeah, uh, sounding exactly right. structure. Uh, and I, I feel that this, at this moment in time, it feels as though, uh, either those people are leaving or have left the the club in, in Liverpool's regard, or uh, it could be a case of actually uh, he's he's starting to take on a, a few more things that perhaps actually he's not actually the best at that uh, previously were being run by other people. But again, this is this is like speculation. But it does feel <laughs> as though there's, there's been a departure from from the from that stage. And I think that that humility uh, is something that you need to have to be to be a top coach. So whether you're Lampard, whether you're Gerrard. 
uh, whether he who could be next off that conveyor belt. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of waiting for who will be the next um, promising uh, uh, recently retired player. I mean, I'm hoping Chabi Alonso actually does it differently. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> you know? a, that's that's a good example, right? And he he did. He went down at Sociedad and he turned down the move to Leverkusen. I think the first move he turned down to Germany was Leverkusen as well. Leverkusen, yeah. And and bo- like a year before he took the job, and basically. You never know what pub, you know. You, you never know what public statements are in terms of reality. Like it could have just been a money negotiation. But he said, "I'm not ready yet. I, I you know, I want to be here and I need to learn my craft more." And I, I just like I just think that managers who succeed are guys that learn their craft. And I just I, I don't think that's any different than players. But I do think that there is this idea that being a good player should be the training you need to be a good manager. And that is just almost never the case. No. And it's an interesting one as well, because I think when you were talking about it there, I mean, being a good player or being a player like Lampard or a player like Gerard, perhaps that does make the, uh, make you a good man motivator, right? I mean, perhaps that does make you a good manager in sort of quotation marks from the old school. But you really have to make sure that then you surround yourself with... Right, that's right. Uh, stuff that's going to help you uh, and masks all the areas where you're not as not as strong. So, I mean, l- l- looking at the season, then were you surprised just how long uh, Lampard was in position? Obviously, the club had invested money. Uh, they, they brought in certain players. If we could talk about perhaps, you know, the, yeah, the players who were is... successful or not. But yeah, he, he he lasted longer than I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think there is there is some sort of. I mean, I think there's two things. I mean, I think one is that the decision-making process at the top of Everton is a mess right now. I, I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily clear who's in charge in terms of ownership. Mm. Um, and that that is its own sort of story. So I, I, I think that making a sort of decisive break was just functionally very difficult. And then I think on top of that, there is this hope, right, that like you had these good vibes last year, you went out, you bought some players – it would have been nice. It really would have been if Lampard had found a way to be good enough to be here for a few years and provide the stability that the club needs. So I think there was a, there was a, this sort of combination of wishful thinking and and just an indecisive management group that is it, it is itself in its own form of crisis, right? Um, that that led to him being here longer than than he should have been or then that certainly that a different management group might have decided on. Because, I mean, I do think that one thing I I, I believe is that I don't think that there's a lot of talent on this Everton roster. Like, this is not like a, a team that is being mismanaged in a way that they should be a mid-table club. Interesting. But I do think that, like, they're pretty comfortably a 14th, 15th most talented team in the Premier League. And it is a real problem if you are the 14th or 15th most talented team and you are playing to the level of the 18th or 19th best team. Mm. That's a, that's like, it's much, much worse to have that gap than to be like 11th versus 15th or even eighth versus 12th, right? Like the, the significance of being, having enough talent to not get relegated and sitting in the relegation spots is, you know, a five alarm fire. And it should have been one that, that registered earlier, for sure. Um, that said, like, I, I am optimistic about the rest of the season for Everton to, uh, like, a low level of optimism, right? Like, I do think that this is a talented enough team not to get relegated. I do think that this is a team that that uh, has the potential to be better than they are right now and that Sean Deitch, Deitch is a good fit for doing that. So, like... Mm-hmm. I, I am optimistic about that part of it, but yeah, this should have happened. I don't know, two months ago, easily. Like you could have, yeah. you could have, you could have just taken the World Cup break and, and and done this and had a lot of time to prepare, and you just didn't. I was going to ask actually. Yeah, I was going to ask me. Obviously, sort of Lampard ends up sort of departing after that West Ham defeat. Uh, again, sort of another club really, really struggling and seemed to be playing way below some of their parts um, at the at this point. Uh, in the season, anyway, um, you said two months. I mean, was that so? So, was there was there a game that you that you think back to and go, yeah, that's that's pretty, a very clear example of. You know, I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't because I'm sort of a nerd. I don't really think in terms. Don't think of, that way. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't think. I, I think as soon as you're at the point where you're saying a result in this game should be definitive. Oh no no no! Definitive. I don't. Yeah. But, but I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't I mean the must win yeah. game. I, I I just mean a point where you go. Well, I think we've seen enough. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look. I think I think it was clear pretty early on. Um, I I, I don't know that I would have. 
I, I don't have a point for you where, where I would say, hey, look, this is this is one thing's clearly changed. But I, I just, you know, it was more like you kept waiting to see something that made Frank worth keeping and you yeah. kept waiting to see something. And, and it just never really came this year. Like there was just never a point where you said, even said like, OK, I can, you know, when they purchased Onana and Mopay, basically those two guys, I was like, oh. Okay, there was enough money to make a couple of important purchases for the shape of this squad, and maybe this will be okay. And then those, you know, there was just never a cohesive unit that came of that under Lampard ever. And you just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah, yeah. interesting as you were sort of going going through that and sort of talking about a side, you know, uh, that perhaps was fourteenth uh, um, in the league when it came to the quality in the squad and performing like they were nineteenth. Um, and I do have to, I do have to say, uh, and I'm sure the Liverpool listeners will be. Will be uh, um, sort of uh, aware of what, what I'm about to say as well. It's uh, it didn't didn't uh, elude me that uh, Liverpool uh, have been playing uh, aside from the heroics of one Alison Becker, uh, like a 18th or a 17th or 18th place uh, side when it comes to the, the defensive side of their game at the very least. Um, and that has been uh, going on for quite a while uh, this season. So yeah, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that and your your view on sort of that situation anyway, but. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a tad predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. You mentioned Onana, you mentioned Mopé, uh, and sort of, uh, I, I did enjoy sort of Mopé realising his true potential uh, for <laughs> uh, his, his biggest talent uh, in obviously sort of causing existential crises uh, amongst the Arsenal uh, uh, squad uh, <laughs> on the uh, on the weekend. Um, but you mentioned Onana, you mentioned Mopé. Uh, Dwight McNeil obviously came in as well. Uh, Idris Agé uh, returning from uh, from PSG. Um, the departure as well of uh, Rick Hardison, no no small figure uh, when, it, when it comes to his influence over the Everton uh, team as well. Um, I probably missed some things out there as well, for, for sure. But j- just in terms of sort of the headline actor of of the players that came in uh, and those that departed, I mean, what what have you made of the performances of those players and, and, and which of them have, have settled the better yeah. or which of them make the most sense? Yeah, Tarkowski is the other one. Um, Tarkowski, that's it, yeah. And Tarkowski in defense, I think, has just sort of been good. Like, he's, yeah. he's a very good defender. He's just mm. a good defender. And, and, and I, you know, that's the easy one. Um, mm. Onana is the interesting one because Onana is clearly the most talented to come in. And, I mean, he's huge. I did not realize he was 20. I really didn't know that. Yeah, so he's so young and he's so big. And,. He's an interesting player because he is very good at getting upfield with the ball. And, you know, against Arsenal, honestly, you know, Everton's best chance came when he broke through with the ball at his feet down the left side and, and, and fizzed across and, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin sort of got a toe to it, but couldn't finish it. And he's also been everything from an attacking midfielder to a center defender in France before he came. And I think the sort of like default understanding of him has been as a defensive midfielder. And I think that probably the biggest disappointment of of Lampard's time was not figuring out what you do with him. And then Deitch comes in and one game he's like, oh, I know what to do with him. He's going to be an eight. He's going to get up the field. We're going to target him in build-up as a target, basically quasi-forward, and make sure that all our set-piece stuff runs to him. And we're, we have this weapon, and we're going to use him, and because he's an, he's an 8, not a 10, that he, we're going to use his ranginess and defensive ability as well. And it, like, it's just 
it became like I honestly I felt like I watched the first 15 minutes of the match against Arsenal and we're like oh right this is what you're supposed to do and Deitch came in and did that in his first match um so I am quite optimistic about not Mapea he's a limited player he's got skills in terms of getting shots he's always been sort of like I don't know, 15% less at doing good things with those shots than, than you want him to be. He can play on the wing. He can be annoying. He's been worse than I expected him to be. Um, but I, I like part of it is like, is Dominic Calvert-Lewin ever going to be the healthy force that he was a couple of years ago? And if he is, then Mopé's weaknesses don't matter that much. But I just sort of suspect that physically Calvert-Lewin has had so much happen to his body over the last couple of years that we're just not going to get back to that point, at which point Mopé's weaknesses become a, a, a real problem. Um, so I, I think, and, and Ghana's okay. Ghana used to be great and is now old, so he's yeah. okay. Um, I, I think that the team over the summer did look around and say, boy, we need a, a forward and we need a midfielder and got those pieces. And I do think that there is a functional way to form all this together as a team, um, which sort of looked already like Sean Dyche is finding. Uh, but it is just sort of like, they're not easy pieces to get the most out of. And Lampard clearly was not getting the most out of them. And it is an open question as to whether or not Dyche will. And in terms of the departures as well, or perhaps the the most notable departures, uh, obviously this sort of continuation of um, sort of the the unraveling of of Deli Ali's career um, as well, with him heading to Besiktas uh, on loan um, and seeming to have a quite a bad time of it as well. Um, there's uh, a couple of players who departed. Yeah. I mean, Toshin, Rondon. Um, I mean, a lot of. I mean, Deli Ali is an interesting case because, mm. sort of personally, his story is interesting. It um, is. Yeah. And who knows what has happened to him as a player? Uh, mm. You know, I, I, I sort of didn't expect we were going to get a, a, a good version of Deli Ali when he came. I thought it was a reasonable gamble to take, but he was just not. He was not good. Um, he seems to have a, the 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 joy just extracted from from his game yeah. as well. There was always like a freeness to his game. Yeah, and it's, and it's gone. Yeah, it, yeah I, it's 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 hard to say. Um, Richarlison is like obviously the best player that left. Although he had not been good his last year at, at Everton until that stretch run. You yeah. know, I think he had had an incredibly busy summer two summers ago when he had played for Brazil, both in the Copa America and the Olympics. And he played something like 15 matches over the summer and he came back and he was just physically not as ever present as he had been. Um, But I have just like a, a, a tremendous amount of fondness for him as a player. And I think all Everton fans do. And they, clearly his abilities were not replaced. Um, and I don't know that you could have found a player sort of at Everton's level to, to replace those necessarily, certainly not with the price bill they were working on. Um, so there were a lot of, I mean, the, the talent level just by dint of Richarlison leaving dropped. I mean, all these other guys, whatever, Santos and Rondon, these were bad they, they were they were bad signings and they came in and mm. they didn't provide much and you are not sad to see them go. Uh, just clearly, like part of whatever needs is is a, a a clear out of of a lot of wage stuff, a lot of wage detritus that had just accumulated over the years of being run poorly. Um, so you need to do that while maintaining a, a level of play that keeps you safe from relegation, and that is their challenge over the next season, two seasons, three seasons, really, which is kind of depressing to say. But, you know, that sort of the Rondon stuff, the, the Sanctos and stuff, those moves that should never have happened in the first place, um, it's great. <laughs> it's great to get those cleared off the books. The question is, can you get enough from Damari Gray, from, I don't know, like, is Andres Townsend physically ever going to be able to get on the field and, and be decent again? Um you know, I'll, 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 there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, as if, if you accept that Everton are operating under a fairly different reality than they were three years ago in terms of how much, you know, the resources at their disposal and how much money they can spend, I don't have a problem with the last year's worth of roster moves. The, the problem is, is that they operated for years 
under the assumption that like we're just going to be able to spend a lot of money poorly forever and that will be fine and that like then it stopped for (laughs) geopolitical reasons basically and so you just like you find yourself in a really bad place and clearing out from that really bad place is difficult and and you know all that in mind i don't have a huge problem with last summer i don't have like and 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 the sort of moves they've made in the last few months um but it's grim <laughs> like overall yeah no it was uh, it was it was it was quite a departure from of course the days of uh james rodriguez and you know carlo ancelotti being in the dugout as well it does feel Look, like that I mean, this a very was, long time this, ago yeah this was a team whose approach during those years was we were going to by 28, 29-year-old players because they are good and because our managers want them. And we will compete with those players and we'll compete at a decent level. And then when they get older and decline, we'll just buy another 28 or 29-year-old to plug right in. And that works until you can't keep doing that every year. And they lost tremendous amounts of money, but you know they were sort of willing to do that there was money to be lost i suppose and then as soon as that approach has to stop like you look around and you know you've got 32 year old alan who can't get on the field who you paid a lot of money for right you've got james rodriguez who now that carlos angelotti is gone has no interest in playing for your club whose wages you got to figure out what to do with you have these guys like santosin whose like wages you've been trying to figure out how to loan out for years and years and years um and it's just once the money stops, it is a lot harder to go on to the next phase of your club mm. when you've been spending that way, when you've been buying 28, 29-year-olds instead of 21, 22, 23-year-olds. Yeah. And I think in that way, so when you mentioned sort of the past year's worth of business as well, on the whole, I mean, there's a few exceptions there. Tarkovsky being one of them, for example. Uh, Idris Gay being an another one uh but um uh, yeah the profile of players the age of players there um it's it's spending money on players for whom if if it does go you know if it does go wrong yeah, yeah they they should have resale value uh you shouldn't be left in the same position as you were with with some of those players that you listed off there uh, another one of those young players however who wasn't signed but ended up leaving the club uh is anthony gordon of course um and sort of his move to to newcastle um what were your thoughts on on Gordon as a player? Um, his influence, I'm, I'm his honestly, I, at that price point, I was quite okay with selling him. To be honest, um, yeah. look, like physically, he's 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 fast. He's pretty good with the ball at his feet. Um, none of that has yet evinced itself in sort of anything resembling the ability to create decent shots for himself or his teammates. Right. And you can make the argument that that has a lot to do with the condition of Everton over the past couple of years. Um, I'm open to that argument. I don't think that I would have enough com- confidence in that argument to spend as much as Newcastle did on him. And so I am not at all sad that you take that money. Uh, for Gordon at this point. I just think that like, yes, there's the possibility that he becomes a good winger there. Um, but the possibility is not so high that you should turn down what was a, a significant mm. transfer fee. Now, are you going to spend that money? Well, well, that's a, that's a very <laughs> open question. Like, um, But yeah, I, I don't you know. I, I think that if you look at the history of Everton prospects, there is, there's a real, desire among the fan base to have our players develop into our stars. And I think really going back to, to selling Wayne Rooney as a, you know, when he, after he explodes as a 16 year old, there's this belief that all of these kids that come up, you know, if only we hold on to them and develop them, we'll turn into stars. And like, I don't know. I look at Ross Barkley's career and I think, you know, it was good that we sold Ross Barkley. Like, he was not going to develop into that star. And I look at John Stones' career, and I think I, I don't know if he would have developed into the player he was if he stayed at Everton. Um, and that, you know, we did get a good transfer value for him. And that part of what, maybe part of what you're supposed to be doing as an Everton club right now is developing young players and selling them and using that money. Mm. Um, that you don't, and that that's okay, right? Like not every prospect turns into a star. And I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. 
Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. I, like, I am of the opinion that, that Anthony Gordon is not going to turn into a star or is relatively unlikely to. And if you're getting star-like potential money for him, you should sell him. Um, yeah. So, Yeah, and it's about, I, I, I think, just just by virtue of the fact that they're, they're, local, they're local talents, uh, yeah, if, if you keep them at the club, uh, you know, whoever you're talking about, that, that, that doesn't mean they're going to be developing into a good player. I mean, you, you, you do have to cultivate the environment for players to develop in a positive way at your club. And I think from what you were saying there, it's, it's like Everton's not necessarily been that environment for, for the players that you know, you've, you've spoken about in the past. I mean, I think that that's true, but like at the same time, I think it's important to remember like what developing into a good player is, right? Mm. So you look at Seamus Coleman, who has been been at Everton forever at this mm. point, and was bought as I don't remember if he was a teenager, he's like just turned twenty twenty one, for no money from Ireland, and developed a couple loans, developed you know David Moyes initially wouldn't trust him at right back, played him at right midfield until eventually he like trusted him to move back, you know, when Tony Hibbert retired, basically, you know, as I go back into the, you know, the Everton archives here and he is a success story as a transfer, right. As a development story, he is a success story. He's a guy that's turned into a good right back for you for years that you developed into that player. He never ended up being worth what Everton just got for Anthony Gordon, right? No, like no. L- lots of su- lots of developmental success stories for players are like turns into a good but not great player that you can play. <laughs> and if you can get money that is worth more than that by selling them, like I, I think oftentimes you just sort of have to bite the bolt and do it. Yeah. No, it's, I think when you put it like that, it, it is a pretty simple, it's a simple calculation. Obviously the emotional the emotional attachment makes it more difficult, especially when they're a local uh, local player. But I think, it, uh, yeah, I think you're right on that one. And um, with that, I think it's uh, it's a nice time to turn to to Mr. Sean Dyche, uh, who uh, was appointed manager uh, well, following that um, sort of defeat uh, to West Ham. Uh, and in typical Sean Sean Dyche style, um, as if the narrative was you know pre written, predestined, uh, he 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 came and uh, spoiled the party for. Uh, for for Arsenal with sort of the way in which you set Everton up um, for for the previous game, obviously with that one nil win, um, yeah. Your thoughts on Dijmi? I think you've already you've already said a lot there around sort of you thinking he's the right man for this for this job at this moment. Uh, but in, in terms of what you've seen from him so far, very limited in terms of actual on game yeah. uh, on game evidence. Uh, uh, what you've heard from him is probably what you expected to hear from him, to be honest. Uh, but in that one game, uh, let's get you to make some sort of. Uh, Massive judgments uh, <laughs> uh, from the way in which he changed things and uh, sure. the, so, the tweaks he made. So I joked uh, during the match that I was prepared for Everton to play badly and steal a point or three because that would be very funny. And I am always prepared for a team to be the worst team, but somehow scrape a result. What I was not prepared for is what happened, which is that Everton were the better team when they played Arsenal, sort of, but like, any way you, you slice things, they didn't give up. A, you know, they held Arsenal to one of Arsenal's worst attacking performances of the season, and they created you know more than enough for themselves to be good value for a goal, if not two. Uh, so that, I mean, that's a very positive step for Sean Dyche as, as as he takes over. You look at what to expect, and I think you, you know some of it is obvious, right? You're not. 
going to play a lot of passes close to your own goal. You are going to get the ball up the field quickly when you have the opportunity to have possession, and you are going to attack the opposition goal quickly. Um, I think one misconception about Deitch from his time at Brentley, and I think you could see that in, in the game against Arsenal, is that he is, he is not a defensive coach who instructs his team to be incredibly positionally conservative. Burnley teams were willing to pick their moments and press. I expect Everton teams to be willing to pick their moments to p- apply defensive pressure and press. Uh, I, I expect them to be difficult to break down over the entire pitch, which is to say I expect it to be difficult to move the ball from the defenders to the midfielders against Everton, and then difficult to move it from the midfielders to the attackers, and then difficult to take shots. I do not expect this team to be something, you know, more like a Steve Bruce, Sam Allardyce approach, which really is, even when it works, quite positionally conservative, where you have a very low block, you let the opponent move the ball from defense to midfield without contesting it all that much, and then, you know, make sure that any shots they take are difficult shots. So I, I do think that, that Deitch's teams defend the course of the field. Um, to that end, we've seen a couple of changes already, right? I, I think I talked about how Alex Awobi was a wingback and a, and a midfielder under Lampard over the last year. He started Sean Deitch's first game as an out-and-out winger. Uh, we start with three midfielders, which were Ghana at the base with Onana and Decore basically is your eights. And I, I mean, I think that Deitch has not really played a 4-3-3 at Burnley, but I think given the personnel, given that you have a Wobi who you want on the field as a winger, given that you have McNeil, given that you have Gray, I would expect him to sort of shift into a, I mean, I call it a 4-3-3. It's probably more of a 4-5-1. Um, and, you know, a Dominic Calvert-Lewin, a very, very typical target man up top. The ball when it was recovered deep in your own third, goes immediately to his head. And he is supposed to hold up play. Um, he is supposed to not even really run the channel, although you can do that sometimes. It's really supposed to go up to him, and he's supposed to keep the ball and allow the rest of the team to move up the field. Uh, that's what I expect to continue to happen. The thing that I brought up before, which I think is very important, and the thing that I'm really looking forward to watching, is that I expect Onana to be a pretty big part of this team as an eight. I expect him to be targeted with the ball in the attacking third. I expect him to be the center of all the set play action that that Everton run. I expect him to get into the box to be the second body in the box when they do have the ball up the field in wide areas. Um so that's what I expect. And I think that that's, that is a better fit for this talent than whatever, than whatever Frank Lampard was doing. And I, I think specifically against Liverpool, there's some interesting sort of questions and tactical interactions and that, you know, also hinge a lot on like a lot of uncertainty about what Liverpool are right now. But I, I you know, what Deitch does is somewhat less conservative, I think, than people stereotype him as, but not pretty, right? Like, it's not it's not ever going to be free-flowing football. It's, it's tough as nails defending across the field and sort of physical dominance in the attacking third is the aim, is the goal. That, that's sort of what I expect. Yeah, and I think you're, probably, you're going to be spot on with that. I, 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 I do think that's... Uh... That's the way in which he'll look to mold mold Everton in his uh, in his own image, shall we say? Also, the the new image. I, I do believe we, we might see a little bit of evolution actually uh, from Deitch with with you know, better resources at his disposal. For example, um, you mentioned the, the the game itself. Then, obviously, on Monday Monday evening, um, I think we, we're doing these pods and we we speak to to journalists who cover other people's. Um, Sorry, who cover opponents um, across the league, uh, sort of fans as well, and um, yeah, I always end up at a stage where we where we talk about the game that's coming up, and um, you know what what incarnation of Liverpool they they think that they are you know about to face. And over the past couple of years, it's been it's been quite nice to be able to do that because obviously Liverpool have been a uh, pretty formidable version of themselves. Uh, I think it's fair to say this season. 
uh, um, shadow of, the, of their former selves, uh, completely unrecognizable at times, uh, just glimmers here and there of, uh, of sort of old familiar systems and broken systems. Um, in terms of where Liverpool are at the moment, uh, their, their confidence, the vulnerability that they've shown, uh, I, I really cannot, uh, think of, uh, a better moment, uh, with which Deitch would, would have wanted to had a Merseyside derby. Um, seems like it's really well set up for him to uh, to go there and impose um, or try and get Everton to impose themselves uh, on on a vulnerable looking Liverpool side. Uh, uh, just before we actually get onto the game itself, I mean, I mean, what have you made of this of this malaise? Do you have your own theories? I mean, what's your uh, the the discussions the discussions you had on the pod um, about it as well? Yeah, um, Liverpool are interesting. I think on average over the course of the season they have been somewhat better than their current record in place in the table. But I also think that yeah. for a team that was so great last season, mm. uh, being somewhat better than mid-table is shocking. It is a shocking occurrence. Mm. Um, some of that is down to injury, for sure. Uh, some of it is... The way I think of it is this. I think there are a lot of players on Liverpool who have been incredibly useful pieces over the years that, you know as long as they aren't the star. A lot of those guys. Like, you love having Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain as your sixth option coming into play in, in, in the front line. You know, Naby Keita as your fifth midfielder is giving you more than most teams' fifth midfielders. Um, you know, having your choice of Konate, Matip, and, or, and, and Gomez next to Van Dijk is, is an embarrassment of, of, of options. When all of those guys are, have to be on the field all the time, every week, week in and week out, because the guys who are the starters in front of them are hurt or have aged into being not necessarily better than them or what have you, then you see why they are not starters in their own right altogether. And it creates a lot of weaknesses. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's going on at Liverpool. And then on top of that, you know, you have... Diaz and Jota both getting hurt so that the sort of the next generation of refresh is not is mm. not happening because they're not there. And then on top of that, I I do have questions about a guy, you know, about spending as much as you spend on Cody Gakpo and, and expecting him to come in and, and contribute quickly. Mm. Uh, so there are a lot of legitimate questions about about Liverpool right now. And you're right that as an Everton fan, I cannot imagine a better time to to want to face them. I mean, that said, I don't want to, like, I've been pretty grim. Uh, like, I, I feel like I've been pretty optimistic about a grim situation for Everton on, uh, so far <laughs> as we've been talking, which is to say, like, I can envision where Everton come fairly close to the top of their potential over the rest of the season, but that is a very low ceiling for Everton where we are right now. Whereas I feel like Liverpool are playing fairly close to their, their, their basement right now, but that basement is still significantly above where Everton are. Mm. So yes, I could not imagine a better time to have this matchup if you're Everton. I, but I, I don't, that doesn't make me feel like, Oh, we're going to go get three points. I, I, I think um, there is, you could see a path. You can see a path. Like you can see how this game goes for Everton where they, they get a result. But like a lot of me just sort of feels like eventually Darwin Nunez is going to get four shots and one of them is just going to be a goal. Like it's not going to happen every week that that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, you know. Please, please. <laughs> I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the chaos and but actually it's got to a stage where I, I would I would like there to be some. Some you know, it's, normality. It's very funny because <laughs> the stats nerds, of which I'm obviously one, were skeptical of Darwin as a signing because they looked at his finishing. We looked at his finishing in Portugal and said, he has a lot more goals than his underlying numbers might suggest he should. And he shows up at Liverpool and the underlying numbers are like, oh, wait, no, this is legit. And he can't put the ball in the back of the net all of a sudden. Mm. Um, so I, I am just sort of like, it like to me, I sort of go into this match feeling like you know if 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 Liverpool stop having a number of the real unfortunate things that keep happening on top of them not playing well happen to them, they're just a better team than Everton still, even at this moment. Um, 
but like you could see a way, right? Like you oh, can oh, s- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I mean, yeah. Just if if, if I was going to speak about sort of the the areas that concern me in this in the, in this matchup, I mean, I, I I think my concern with Liverpool at the moment is uh, I, I think if if the attack started to function um, like it probably should do, you mentioned Nunes there uh, and actually finishing the opportunities that he has been uh, fashioning, um, sometimes for himself and sometimes from the from his teammates, then yeah, Liverpool instantly become a better team. Um, if you if you pass the ball to Mohamed Salah um, rather than smash one uh, into Rose Ed, um, chances are he will he'll score more goals. Passing to Mo Salah is like a statistically a good thing to do. It's a good um, idea. If, yeah. If, if if you're a Liverpool attacker, um, especially if you're short on confidence, just pass it to Mo. Yeah, typically he's he's going to do do that work. Do I think that makes Liverpool a better side? Yes, I do. I think that you know you you paper over some cracks that um, that, that that are still there. Um, the issue I see is um, the the pressing function, the midfield function of of the team doesn't get fixed personally until you actually change personnel. There there is there is not fixing unless you're going to make a tactical switch that I don't think they're going to make. Uh, and then defensively, yeah, you, you want players to come back. I think I think that's a. Uh, a point you mentioned there of sort of you know, the, the the replacements or not the replacements, but the, the second, third, fourth choices show you why they're second, third, fourth choices uh, when they're ha- having to play for a long period of time. Uh, and Joe Gomez, uh, not particularly strong in the air, and I think Liverpool suddenly becoming vulnerable uh, from set pieces uh, when Van Dijk has gone missing um, for for a period of games, uh, and Canate is not able to put all the fires out is not a surprise to me. So that that's an area that. I imagine if if you're Sean Dyche, you look at it and go, well, if Virgil isn't back, and if it's Matip, if it's Gomez, if Klopp decides, oh, I'm going to you know, resurrect uh, Nat Phillips for this game, and it's Nat Phillips somehow, uh, and uh, um, God, who, who would it be next to him? God, Gomez uh, or Matip, or <laughs> I think Gennady is going to be out, but whoever it would be, you imagine Liverpool are going to be more vulnerable in that area of the pitch, so... Yeah, the midfield like not being able to necessarily be fixed, or if we play those young players that, or the the three that we've seen over the past few games of Bacetich, Keita, and Thiago, uh, I quite like what they've been trying to do. They will not like a physical contest uh, yeah, necessarily. It, it's sort of an interesting set of matchups here, right? Because I, I do think that you're right that like a, a big problem with Liverpool is they become much too easy to pass through. Um, oh yeah, given what, whatever right. But Everton aren't going to try to pass through you. Like I, I'm pretty confident, even having just watched one game with Sean Dyche at Everton, like yeah. they're not going to they're not going to try to pass through yeah. that. You midfield. can also they're run. Gonna... You can also run through the midfield as well. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a that's fair point. Um, but like, there's going to be a lot of balls over the top to to cover them, right? And and to Onana stepping forward. Uh, and 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 in that way, I think that Everton are poorly set up to exploit something that has become quite a weakness for Liverpool. On the other hand, you're also right that like physically, if Everton can get a bunch of set pieces, can put the ball in the box, can aim at Onana and Tarkowski and Calvert-Lewin, that that is a, a all of a sudden quite a prominent strength for Everton that matches up well with the weakness of, of Liverpool's. And I, you know, I just sort of, I think a lot of what this match is going to, to, to hinge on is are Everton going to be able to create those opportunities of limited stretches of pressure, pressure, right? Where you get that, that seven, eight minute stretch where you get four corners. Um, That's what they did against Arsenal. They didn't have a lot of the ball, but they had two or three of those limited stretches and they got a goal from one of them. Um, And I think the rest of the time it's going to be, you know, a lot of damage control from Everton, but if you can put in, a good defensive performance against Liverpool and have those sort of limited stretches of pressure. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's what you're aiming for. Can you make those stretches count? Can you turn four corners into three shots? Can you turn, you know, a, an eight minute stretch where you're pressuring Liverpool on the ball into a couple of turnovers that lead to chances. Um, you don't have to do it for the whole game and then you defend. And you know, I, I I think that Liverpool are still a good enough attacking team that you would expect them to get a couple of real good chances from that. But that is the that is the balance of the game I'm expecting. And I think a successful Everton performance is not judged based on can you keep Liverpool from applying pressure, but judged based on 
accepting that Liverpool is going to apply pressure, will you have those couple of stretches where you can in turn apply pressure yourself? Not because you are keeping the ball and creating chances, but because you have moved the ball up the field quickly and turned that into Mm. the series of, you know, physically dominant chances where you are just sort of trying to be the bigger, stronger, better in the air team against Liverpool in their own box, as opposed to trying to use possession to create chances. Yeah. And I, 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 I think that's right. And I, but, but I think I sort of have gone to a stage now where uh, in terms of applying pressure, I don't think it takes, it takes the same uh, application of pressure that it used to, uh, to, lay a glove uh, on this Liverpool side at the moment. And I, I do wonder psychologically, so, so psychologically, I mean, which is obviously quite hard to, to quantify. And we talk about stats here from time to time. Um, but I, I do wonder where, <laughs> where this, where this Look, people are at. And this I mean, like a, it's, it is, uh, I mean, it has been a, with relish, relish. Yeah. Really. It's been a brutal Liverpool season from that standpoint of like conceding goals from your first shot. Like oh, having yeah. weird deflection. Like it's just, it's been one of those years where, like, yes, there's unquestionably real issues with play and everything, but like. And Allison's just- been phenomenal. <laughs> he's been yes. Like, like, right. Like, withstanding it as well. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've got on- the numbers on that, but yeah, he's, uh, he's done more than enough. I mean, Allison, Allison is amazing. And, but then on top of that, like, just like you have these stretches for Liverpool where everything that can go wrong does. And it's hard to be resilient in the face of that, right? Um, now, like the flip side is like, if that doesn't happen, I don't have a ton of faith that Everton can chase a game, right? I don't have a ton of faith that like Everton can, can take matters into their own hands as opposed to, you know, needing to counter, needing to not have the ball to make something happen. Um, because even at the even at the deichiest of deich teams that have had him there for years to put in everything that he wants to do, so much is built on responding to not having the ball. And he's been there two weeks, and like what he's put in is clearly some defensive structure and clearly some basic plans. But I just like when your plan A is like we're going to defend and make them try to beat us, and then we are going to use that impetus to create chances for ourselves. I just have no faith that there has been time to implement a plan B yet. So you're going to need stuff to go wrong for Liverpool to get that result. But like this has just been one of those years for Liverpool where stuff goes wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, like you've 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 done a good job at, at, at actually trying to make me a little bit more optimistic. I'm usually a very optimistic. <laughs> People who listen to this pod will know I'm, I'm a very optimistic uh, person on this, but I, I just I, I'm, I'm annoyed by the problems that are some some seemingly out of control uh, of the of the Liverpool uh, coach and sort of the club as a whole at the moment. There are things we can control, but there, there's some other stuff that uh, yeah needs to probably change, <laughs> and it's and it's probably not going to change for a while, but. Yeah, this this is this this uh, it's it's set up to be a really intriguing game. Uh, it's set up also to be a really miserable game. We'll see. We'll, yes. see, we'll, we'll, we'll see what it's like. Um, uh, this is this is definitely one that that everybody's going to find miserable, but supporters <laughs> and neutrals are going to find it miserable for entirely different reasons. Oh yeah, and Deitch, I mean, I'm sure, like I think almost irrespective of what happens, I think he's probably going to really enjoy this. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so uh, it's yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, uh, Mike, as as usual, I mean, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. You've got like a wealth of of insight that yeah, really appreciate you um you you giving us the time to talk about Everton and uh, yeah, the, it's very interesting um, if at times sort of grindingly uh, like gristly journey <laughs> that, 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 that the club has uh, has been on to get to this point. And yeah, yeah you're with, telling with, me with dice, there's 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 only more gristle. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's a different form. But yeah, really appreciate it. And, and and before we do wrap up, did you want to sort of give a plug to to the great work you're doing on the pod as well? Sure. So uh it's the double pivot podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash double pivot. It's me and Michael Kelly. We nerd out sort of analytics. We've been talking a lot about all the sort of financial behind the scenes stuff that's been going on in the Premier League this year, yeah. this season. Uh, we have a Discord over there too for subscribers. Um, great fun. I, I love doing the podcast. We do two, two and a half episodes a week, something like that. Um, and then for people who want to read, I'm the senior editor for soccer at CBS.com and we have tons mm-hmm. of great content over there. Um, you know, we've got a, a great team of writers, James Benj, Jonathan Johnson, um, the whole crew who do Lots of stuff day in, day out. So, you know, 
Lots of I, I am in one way or another responsible for lots of soccer content that I hope all of you can enjoy, despite the fact that I call it soccer. Yeah, no, and I think I think from the from, from what I know of the interests of the of the listeners of this show, especially when it comes to a more analytical, uh, statistical sort of uh, lens to viewing viewing the game through. Um, I know that yeah, there, there, there's lots of fans of your work and Michael's work as well, and, and the team over at CBS. So yeah, thanks again for coming on, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, and then yeah, to all those who, who've made it this far as well, as you, you, as you'll be no doubt aware, I usually plug the next show, uh, at, at this point in time. And there'll be an episode ahead of what is also promising to be quite an uncomfortable game as well, to be honest. Um, a, a trip, uh, up to Newcastle, uh, to take on, uh, yes, you, you may have seen this, uh, very, very strong Newcastle, <laughs> uh, side uh, at the moment. Uh, Eddie Howe, a, a good example of a manager who's transformed himself, uh, being able to coach what looks like a very, very uh, capable defensive unit up there as well. So that's on the 18th of Feb. There'll be an episode ahead of that game. Uh, but between now and then, do check out all the other great content uh, on on Anfield and Next Pro. We are trying to make the best of what has been a difficult uh, season so far and hopefully give you some more insight into sort of why things are unfolding the way in which they are. But uh, yeah, between now and then, um, listen to all those other pods. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back again, hopefully with some sort of more upbeat tone um, ahead of the game uh, against Newcastle. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.